Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome everybody to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. We are really excited to have you all here. We are going to be talking about the angels and demons of business transfer agreements today. So buy-sell agreements. Um, We are really excited because we have Michael Robinson from right here in Rochester, New York, who's done a lot of work with family-owned businesses, and Michael Pava. Uh, an attorney up north of the border from us. Um, and so it's really unique to have, you know, two attorneys on at the same time. And the reason why I'm excited about this is because, you know, what we discovered when we did our, our pre-show call is that, um, you know, Michael Pava would typically be the attorney that would be hired by a disgruntled family member um, or a disgruntled, you know, uh, you know, the person on the buy-sell agreement. Um, and so he would be, you know, going into court to help them attack the buy-sell agreement and help them get, you know, the best settlement they could. Where Michael Robinson is on the other side of the fence where, you know, he would help the, you know, the family members or the business partners, you know, design the buy-sell agreement. So we're going to kind of just have some fun today. And I, you know, talk about it from both sides of the fence. And I think it'll be an interesting conversation. If you have a buy-sell agreement um, now, you know, after listen to the show and then definitely jump on and read your buy-sell agreement or give myself or Michael Robinson or Michael Pave a phone call if you're up in Canada. And um, you might, it might be time for a review after you hear some of this stuff. So As we traditionally do, I am going to have each of you um, introduce yourselves and just talk about the journey in terms of, you know, most people didn't start out working with family-owned businesses. Most people, you know, might not have always been in, you know, working with business owners when it comes to, you know, the, the, the legal world. So Michael Robinson, if you wouldn't mind, you know, diving in and telling us how you got here today. Yeah. Hey, Michael, thank you. So, you know, for me, the journey really began as a natural outgrowth of of my estate planning practice, because as I was helping families settle out estates after, particularly after a death, it became very clear to me that when there was a family business involved, it was a whole other world but it was a world that was integrally related to the overall estate plan. And specifically, what I saw was the the distress, uh, the, the decay of relationships that so often would occur because there was not clear communication in the family, because there was not a clear plan laid out as to what was going to happen with the business when the, you know, the primary stakeholder died, became incapacitated, what have you. And so it, it just it was a natural outgrowth and something that I just find interesting um, as, as a general matter. So that's really how I got involved in business succession planning. And, and as I say, it's, you know, when people own businesses, they own other things as well. So it's all an integrated part of, of a good estate plan. Great. Appreciate it. Michael Pava, tell us about your journey. Yeah. Good afternoon. So I, you know, I started my career as a municipal lawyer, um, dealing with expropriations, or as in the United States, I, I believe you call it eminent domain. Um, and uh, that obviously deals with the valuation of, of businesses or business losses and how 
um, you know, how compensation is to be paid out. And so that kind of got me on this uh, track of acting for people that were, uh, you know, shareholders and small, closely held small businesses that, um, you know, were being oppressed by the majority shareholders or, you know, wanted an exit, whereas everyone else, you know, wanted to keep everything as is. And so from the, my municipal work, it was kind of a natural transition into working with, you know, business valuation accountants that um, were hired by myself and the client uh, within the context of a shareholder dispute. So that's kind of how I got into, you know, shareholder litigation and, and other uh, associated remedies. Love it. Again, thank you both for joining us today. Um, it, you know, as, as we talk about, you know, this whole idea of designing, I, I am not an attorney, you know, that's not what I do, but I do definitely just kind of like, you know, if you look at thinking about the planning world from the, the same as the building world, there may be an architect who helps to design this wonderful building, but they don't build the building. You know, and so we have spent many, many years learning how to design buy sell agreements or estate planning documents. But when it's all done, you know, we we take that design and bring it over to somebody like Michael Robinson and hope that that, you know, Michael or the attorney that we're working with, you know, dots all the I's and cross all the T's so that an attorney like Michael Pava doesn't come to see us afterwards. Um, I, what I thought would be really, you know, real quick, I just want to hit, you know, what we look at as our seven step process for these things. And then we'll dive into the areas that we're going to be talking about today. But, you know, one, you know, and feel free to, you know, to jump in at any time if you, you have some other thoughts. But one is identifying all the parties involved. Two is determining whether it's going to be, a, you know, a, a type of a sale, whether it be stock or asset. Um, three would be, how are we going to nail down that business valuation? What is, you know, how are we going to determine that? What about taxes? You know, what, are taxes going to be a consideration as we're going through when we're doing these things, either from an estate perspective, income or capital gains? Um, what are the triggering events for this buy-sell agreement? Um, so that we understand all the different triggering events that are out there. Um, what type of an agreement are we going to utilize? And finally, are we going to fund that agreement? If so, how are we going to fund that agreement? Um, so I, I think for the, you know, the, the, when we look at that process, is there anything that I missed or that you would add to that as we're going through, you know, that the whole process of designing the, the buy-sell agreement? No, I'm Mike Robinson here. No, that's uh, Michael, that those are exactly the items that we want to be addressing. Great. So today, you know, what we said was let's tackle some of these things and just kind of play with them a little bit. And, you know, the first one we're going to dive into is probably one of the biggest is valuation, right? Um, and, you know, so Michael, Michael pa Pava, would you walk us through maybe some, of, do you have an example of a client that you've worked with, no names or anything, but just to, to talk about, you know, what was identified and, you know, what, what was the background on that case? Absolutely. So obviously, to say the least, valuation is a critical issue and very often the material sticking point uh, between business owners. And that's obviously no surprise. Now, we're attorneys. We're not accountants uh, in our trade, but we do work with accountants. Obviously, an accountant or forensic accountant is the professional that, uh, that becomes involved when determining usually the, the value of a business. Um, you know, so very often within the agreements, you might see a provision uh, appointing a third-party accountant that will weigh in and determine what the value of a business might be. Uh, important to note that the value of a business may not necessarily be the same thing as the value of individual shares. So the individual shares of an individual that does not have voting rights or the individual shares of the individual that, you know, isn't a, a key personnel in the business may not be viewed by a third party as, as holding that same value. And so this kind of leads into one case that I handled. Again, I'm not going to reveal any particulars, obviously, um, but I once acted for a group of majority shareholders that were trying to 
oust an ex-spouse from the business. And uh, people often say that business disputes are, are the family or matrimonial matters uh, within the, the corporate world, uh, which is very true. Anyways, this group of majority shareholders were trying to oust um, uh, this ex-spouse. They intended to sell their business actually to a private equity firm. Uh, but the first step was they needed to get her out of the business. And so the shareholder agreement obviously was very basic. It didn't really contemplate this scenario where you have an estranged ex-spouse, uh, you know, and, and what to do with her shares or how to value them. Um, by the way, it's always sometimes some agreements actually have a have an equation or formula for setting out the valuation, you know, based on earnings, et cetera, which is always an option. But Michael, let me just, let me jump in real quick. How did the ex-spouse become a shareholder in the first place? Yeah, so she was obviously with one of the key personnel uh, as a partner, uh, married uh, at the time, and so she kind of acted in a you know bookkeeping role, maybe doing a little bit of HR uh, for the business, but she wasn't key personnel in the sense that you know she wasn't arranging agreements and contracts and dealing with customers, um, and so she she. She was involved in that capacity for, I think, five years. Um, but because the agreement didn't speak to valuation, you know, it didn't set out an equation for determining the value of her shares. Her shares were not class A series shares. You know, in Ontario, we often have class A, B, C. So her, her shares were non-voting. Um, so basically, because the agreement didn't really set out the process for determining value, we were able to get a, a, a significant discount on her shares by essentially arguing that, look, this third-party private equity firm doesn't really view your shares or wouldn't view your shares as being as valuable as the shares of the key personnel that actually held the business relationships, that actually dealt with customers you know, routinely, that actually it was a, it was a trade, a trade of sorts, a trade business. So it was you know, they were obviously schooled in, in that trade and held the, the key relationships. So because, you know, the shareholder agreement didn't really speak to valuation, we were able to get a discount on her shares. You know, had there been a strict equation for all of the, all of the shares of the business and how they would be valued, then we would have been, you know, restricted. And she might have, and, and this minority shareholder might have been more protected um, so, you know, that's one example where because the agreement didn't speak to valuation, we were able to get a discount on our shares. And uh, yeah, not all shares are equal. And, and there's a difference between valuing the assets of a business and the shares of a business. Forensic accountant will, will tell you that it's not necessarily the same. Love it. No, no, and that, that's, a, that's a great example. Michael Robinson, you know, if you're dealing with these, this group of owners, what are some of the things that you're, you know, advising to help them think through the what ifs when it comes to business valuation? Yeah. And that, you know, it's, it's funny as I was listening to Michael talk, one of the things that occurred to me is that so often, and this is true with, I guess, any form of planning, you got to start with the right questions. Um, and then that's going to inform the rest of the process. So, you know, when we talk about establishing a value for the business. First of all, the stakeholders need to agree on what kind of valuation are, are we gonna have? And that of course is gonna depend somewhat on just what are the intentions with respect to the business? Is it, you know, is it a closely held business among people who maybe they're friends, but primarily they're business partners? Is it a closely held business comprised of family members and there's going to be you know, some intention of, of ideally keeping the business in the family. So, so, you know, one of the things I always start out with is going to be a fair market value, liquidation value, investment value, what approach is the expert going to take? We want somebody doing an income-based approach or a market-based approach, you know, those are, those, it, it may sound esoteric, but it has real impact. On, on the uh, on the uh, the stakeholders involved. So, what type of valuation are we going to have? Um, you know, to to Michael Pava's point, how are we going to value the individual interest? Will discounts for lack of transferability, et, et cetera, 
um, are those going to be recognized or are they not going to be recognized? Again, that's going to be a, a conversation that the stakeholders need, uh, need to have. Who's going to choose the person who does the valuations? And what if there's a disagreement on the, uh, on the result of the valuation? How often are you going to do them? You know, you do them once, uh, you know, the business is going to change over time. Hopefully it's going to increase in value over time. So all of these things need to be talked about and agreed upon uh, ahead of time. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean when, and I know we're going to talk about triggering events, when somebody leaves the, the business, that it's going to be happy, but at least it's going to be clear as to how it's going to work. Everybody knows up front. And uh, ideally, it will eliminate, uh, Michael, I don't mean to take business away, but hopefully it, it removes the litigation factor or at least minimizes it. Of course. Oh, I love it. And you know, one of the things that we like to talk about when we're dealing with business owners is that there's the potential that the business could be infinite. It could go on for generations. It could supersede each and every person that's running the business today. You know, that's kind of many people's, you know, they think of it as their legacy and that, that's what they're hope, hope for. Maybe it turns ESOP. So there's always, you know, a, a way down the road. Um, but the one thing that people forget is that human beings are finite. <laughs> and, and so this will end. You know, and I think that, you know, a good friend of mine always said, when you're teaching your kids, when you're talking to people, and if there's something that sounds, you know, a little out there, you got to ask them, how does this end? And that's really what we're doing, you know, with this business agreement. And when we're starting business or we're getting into business, we're all excited about it. And it's, you know, the, the attorney who's our buddy that helped us with our real estate closings, maybe the attorney that we go to. To do, you know, hey, you know, we heard we need one of these buy sell agreements. Why don't you zap one together for us? And they grab the boilerplate and put it together. And now everybody signs it and they have it, but they didn't ever have the discussion, right? And I think that's what you're getting to, Michael, is, you know, what are the questions? How does this going to end? What if this ends? And it's so much easier when we're excited about and everything's on good terms to have a logical, you know, conversation about these things, right? When you, you know, Michael Pava, when you look at the other people's buy-sell agreements, um, what would you say, you know, from a valuation standpoint, what do you see most often, you know, if you had to pick, I, I know you see everything, but is there, a, is, is there a basic, you know, the templated document says where you see X, you know, how you're gonna value the business over and over again? To be honest, Michael, I see so many agreements that don't even address the point, which is if, if our viewers can take anything away from today, it's please make sure a valuation question is addressed explicitly and expressly. Um, Mr. Robinson had some great points on what, what to be considered. Um, but usually when there is a valuation equation in the agreement, uh, Michael, um, a lot of the times it says that valuation questions are supposed to be resolved first by mediation or in the alternative if mediation fails arbitration which here in Ontario arbitration and mediation are very um, well they're much cheaper and much more streamlined and quicker than the the fundamental court process so uh, very often um, that will be addressed and the other thing that I do see when I when we have an agreement that addresses valuation is, um, you know, a statement as to who or which professional will weigh in. So very often it is the, uh, the business accountant that is trusted by all parties that, that knows the business inside and out that will be designated as the individual that's supposed to determine, you know, the valuation of indiv individual shares. Um, other agreements, there's an actual equation as to how the business will be valued, which doesn't necessarily mean that the parties are, are going to accept that or agree to it. If later on they think, well, I'm being unfairly prejudiced or I'm being unfairly targeted you know, as a minority shareholder, they may actually push back on, on that equation. But those are the things I see. Designating the professional, mediation or arbitration to determine 
And the other thing I see is, is an equation, uh, a metric by which, you know, the parties agree to how it will be valued. Gotcha. And, and Michael, to Michael Pava's point, the, it is so important to have an objective professional do the valuation. Um, you know, when people begin a business, they have emotional investment in that, in that enterprise, and it's difficult to be objective oftentimes. Um, and, and, and two, it could be an issue you're very good at, at what the business does, but that doesn't mean you're, you're a, a business valuation expert. Um, so just having that objective, you know, assessment of the business's value is absolutely critical. You may choose to allow subjective factors to come into play later on, especially if it's a family enterprise, but you need to have that objective starting point so you can decide whether to allow subjective matters uh, to, to be considered, and if so, how. Great. You know, one of the things when we were together before we talked about, you know, when you see people utilizing the term book value as the valuation of, you know, the process or, you know, of the, of the business, Michael Robinson, do you want to take a, you know, just what are some of the issues with just utilizing book value? And, and I do think there's probably a time like, you know, if you've got a startup and there's there's real no really no value of the business at that point, right? But sure, sure, and and you're right, and you know the the type of valuation that you do may evolve over time, and and again needs to be revisited periodically by the stakeholders. But but you know, as you say, if it's a startup, I mean that's really all there is is book value realistically, um, and so you know assess the assets and uh, and there you go. But for a going concern, book value is, unless the intent is when one of the triggering events happens, the business is gonna be sold or just liquidated, I should say. Book value is interesting, but I don't find it terribly helpful for the most part. Um, you know, if it's going to be a going concern, you want to value it as a going concern because that's what reflects the true value of the enterprise. Michael Pava, any comments to that as well? Absolutely. Uh, I think that's a very good point, Michael. I mean, business valuation is an art. It is not a science, despite working with numbers that are objectively in existence. Because very good forensic accountants can look at the same data and come up with a very, very different conclusion on, on valuation. Um, so that would be my point. Yeah, no, I, I think I want to jump on what you just said there and add to that a little bit is business valuation, you, you need to think about it as a spectrum. If I'm giving my business to my next generation children, I may, from a gift standpoint, I want that gift to be as small as possible. So I'm not, you know, using up my gift tax, you know, that I, that I have, you know, given my, you know, available. If I'm selling to my, to an ESOP and I want my employees to really get the value out of the business, I've taken everything I need out of the business. It might be different than if I need, if I'm selling, selling to an ESOP and I haven't, this is my retirement plan. Um, and the same thing I would think goes for management buyouts. When you start moving into selling to a third party, to an outsider, um, now it's, you know, what is, what is a willing buyer and a willing seller agreeing to, right? I think it's that, that arm's length agreement. And then when you start moving into that M&A world or investment banking world, you might be hoping and looking for, you know, like a private equity group where you might have the second bite of an apple where you're only selling 80% of your business and you're keeping it as a going concern and you're there. You might find synergistic value where somebody says, my, you know, company A and your company B actually equals more than the sum of them separately. And so I'm willing to pay more than anybody else is because of that. And so, you know, we, thinking about these things in advance really makes a big difference, which goes back to why, right? The business valuation is an art form as much as, you know, the, there's a, the science to it. Um, 
One more thing on book value, and then I want to, I'll open back up again. I apologize, but he just, the other thing that struck me is you may have book value, you know, because you check the box to get your buy sell agreement when I'm going into business or, you know, I'm in business for three to four years and an advisor says, where's your, you know, buy sell agreement. And then, and I've just checked the box. And I think it's a lot like a home mortgage. If interest rates continue to drop, 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 you really have to think about, should I refinance my house, you know, my mortgage? Is it worth, am I going to save on doing that? And with a going business concern, it would be the same thing. It's, you know, every three to five years at a minimum, I may, you know, sit down with my partners, sit down with my advisor. And as, you know, Michael Robinson, as you said, I need to have the right questions asked to me at that point, because what I'm thinking today could be different. Michael Robinson, anything to add? No, I think that's, ex that's exactly correct. Um, and I actually did want to just piggyback on one other thing that you mentioned that I know we're not into, you know, we're not, we don't want to get in the weeds on taxes, but as we kind of acknowledged at the outset, you know, when people own a business, they know they own other things too. They're, you know, it's not just the business. And another reason that you want to understand the value of your interest in the business is because it is going to impact your other planning, not only from a tax standpoint, but how are you treating, again, if it's a family situation, how are you treating family members who may not be involved in the business? Um, you need to have that value information in order to make those kinds of decisions. Sure. Love that. Yeah. I mean, real quick, one of the things that, you know, we do, we as business coaches, we want to help them not just protect the business, but we want to help them actually grow the business. And so that with that leads to a whole nother discussion. Should we be growing the value of the business inside your state or outside of your state? That's, you know, sure. <laughs> um, so let's, you know, there's a ton around valuation. We could probably do the whole show on, on, on valuation, but let's, I want to talk about triggering events. And there is a number of different triggering events. Um, and I think, you know, some people call them, what are they, the, 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 the seven D's or the eight D's, or, you know, there's there, I think other people might even, you know, pick more. So Michael Robinson, why don't you give us three or four of the triggering events? Michael Pava, if we can pick up between the two of us and see if we can't hit some of the other uh, definitions of uh, triggering events. Sure. So, you know, uh, death is is one of the most common triggering events that the buy sell is going to to address. One that I do see overlooked, uh, but is related is what about incapacity or disability? Um, and that's going to depend on a number of factors in terms of is someone actively involved in the business or just a financial stakeholder. Um, one of the ones that I also see overlooked, and Michael Pava brought it up uh, in his, his case study, what happens if there's a divorce uh, among parties? And uh, so that needs to be, uh, to be addressed. What if somebody just wants out? You know, can they do that? If so, how does that work? Those are those are just some of the factors that we would want to be addressing. Great, Michael Pava. I think that there's some other. Some people might say esoteric, you know, triggering events. Do you want to add to some of the ones that Michael Robinson came up with? One I've been dealing with lately is just quite simply retirement and just wanting out. Um, I think that's. It's so basic, but it can actually create a lot of problems, especially when the valuation, not to go back to valuation, but when the valuation of, of the assets has just skyrocketed and then, okay, I'm good now. I should be able to sell my stake. You know, I don't want to be bothered with this anymore. I'm, I'm 60 years old. I can make a few million here on, on an exit. Um, so really, I think, think about retirement. Think about, you know, what, 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 what is a valid way to exit the business and is retirement even valid or not? The other right. parties may not be able to even afford to buy you out just because the valuation has skyrocketed. Thinking of a, a you know, other client file where, the, you know, this company owned a, a good sized residence that was converted into a restaurant in Toronto. Okay. Toronto real estate prices are absolutely insane and have been for 10 years. 
And all of a sudden, this couple million dollar investments were $6 million. And they wanted out. Quite simply, they wanted to just cash out and retire. The other two partners wouldn't go along with it. They held the majority stake. So really, it's when is it permissible for someone to exit the business and retire or not? Sure. And if it's not, then how do you deal with it? Right. So you, you, some of those trigger events that you just hit on, I think you, you might call them disagreement. We, you know, we have a disagreement about things and how are we going to you know, do that? What if you want to, I, I think about the case study that you said earlier, Michael, and what if they wanted to terminate that person versus they were selling the business, you know? Um, and and I, I think that's a, a really good point is, you know, you get that unsolicited offer for your business and it's bigger than anybody thinks about. And you've got that one holdout partner um, and we, we, you know, we don't have that, that agreement. Any, you know, as we're talking about triggering events, uh, Michael uh, Pava, um, is there any case studies or any, you know, an example of a, a company that, you know, the, the triggering event was really the sticking point as you were going through, you know, the case? Well, absolutely. I mean, we had dealt with um, a case where quite simply our client had worked uh, for this family run closely held business for, I think, 20, 30 years. He's in his mid sixties. He had, uh, you know, saved his money along the way. He was ready to exit. Okay. And, um, you know, he was a minority shareholder, not C-suite executive, not a chief anything, but, you know, a relatively upper management uh, style position. Um, you know, on paper, he didn't hold that much leverage, you know, so eventually we had to commence litigation because um, this, the company wanted to merge with another, another uh, related party, um, you know, in their, in their area of business. And my guy wanted out and... Um, so essentially, you know, the, the shareholders took the position that, well, we don't care if you want to retire, we're trying to merge and you're not going to screw this up for us because that would be unfair to the other shareholders. <laughs> and so, you know, um, eventually the resolution contemplated terminating his employment, paying severance and uh, paying out his shares. So that was the ultimate resolution. But, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, the triggering event of retirement or just wanting out is uh, is probably the one of the trickier ones to deal with, um, as opposed to say you know disability or incapa incapacity or um, you know so. Sure, Michael Robinson. When you're you know thinking about you know these triggering events, um, I want to go back to I love the, you know what you said the right questions. What are some of the questions that you're asking clients to help them think through? you know, when somebody wants out or death or disability or just there's a disagreement? What are some of those questions? Sure. So, you know, one of them is sort of the overall big question is just what is your vision for the business? Uh, and make sure that there's alignment there, because as, as Michael Pava was just saying, you know, some people may view it as a retirement plan. Others may view it as a, an ongoing income generator that they might pass on. Um, you know, to others. So just what's the, what's the vision? Secondly, and, and related, who do you want to work with? And, and maybe more importantly, who do you not want to work with? Um, you know, so, so we want to make sure that, that the right people, and by the right people, I mean, from the perspective of the stakeholders, that the right people are going to remain involved um, in the, in the business. Um, are all stakeholders going to be treated the same way when various triggering events occur? Maybe, maybe not, you know, especially if you have people with um, dif differing ownership interests, you have majority uh, stakeholders, minority stakeholders. How does that, you know, how do you view that? Um, because that, uh, that can be interesting. Um, so, you know, those are, are some of the basic questions, but the key is to have the conversations before everybody commits and not, you know, when somebody turns 70 years old and decides uh, that they want out of the business. Yeah. And, and I think as you're going through and looking at these triggering events, there's, you know, option A, B, or C. 
in many of these scenarios, you know, if I want to retire at the age of, you know, 40, because I won the lottery, um, but I'm still trying to get full share, you know, value of my shares, um, is that going to be putting, you know, undue, infl- you know, undue stress on the, on the business, um, or my, you know, my, my wife wants to move and, you know, we're, you know, making that change. And so we're, we're doing that early versus I put in 35 years in the business and now I'm 65 years old and, uh, you know, and I want to retire and I deserve to be able to retire, but, you know, just because you don't have the, the well thought out plan to say, how are we going to do this? Is that really on me to do that? Um, you talk, you know, Michael Pavel, we talked about, you know, the disagreement piece. Uh, I want to, you know, there's, when those things happen, I, you know, and Michael Robinson, you probably have, you know, some things that you're going to want to add to this, but what do you do? You know, what do you put into the document? How do you, you know, when you have somebody that's disagreeing, how do you address that in advance? How do you think about those things? A lot of the time, just even having a dispute resolution um, clause is really important. So you can have something that says, look, if there's a dispute about valuation or there's a dispute about someone's exit, you know, this is the process that we're going to follow to resolve it. So we're going to mediate the issue. If we can't resolve it by mediation, then we're going to arbitrate the issue. And so you can really set out the process for a dispute resolution with, with great particularity. Who's going to pay legal fees? You know, are, are the p- parties going to bear their own costs? Who will be the decision maker? You know, what mediator are you going to use? Who will be the professional accountant? Will, will each side have their own accountant or will there be a neutral third party, uh, one accountant to save money as opposed to paying two to help, you know, uh, resolve the issue? Um, so really having a dispute, a, a dispute mechanism is, is a great way to at least address what happens then usually the clause will say something vague like oh the parties agree to negotiate in good faith as we know when money's at play saying you know okay we agree to negotiate in good faith it's really quite meaningless at the end of the day Um, but what you don't want to do is if you can avoid it do not leave the decision making to someone uh, that is a court because you'll likely um, both sides will likely feel disappointed at the end of the day. Great. Yeah. And I, I would agree with what Michael uh, Pavit just said. It is so important to have a, a clear and specific method for, uh, for dealing with disputes that arise. You know, it, certainly in the drafting component, you try to address as much of that as you can. And, and, and eliminate opportunities for disagreements, but you can't anticipate everything. And I, you know, I'm reminded of the saying, you know, no man or woman steps into the same river twice because it's not the same river and they're not the same man or, or woman. Things change and, and people's circumstances change. So as much as we try to identify and, and take care of those things up front, a, a clear dispute resolution process is is critical great there's there's some phrases when it, in the buy sell world that i you know people might not be familiar with i i think they'd be worth talking about but um i'm, I'm just trying to think that I, russian roulette inside of a, a, the 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 business agreement or can you diff, can talk about some of those at all do you, you is that making is that am I making sense to you? Am I catching that? It's kind of like I think there's you know when it comes to the value of the business, you know if there's a disagreement, how do we you know settle the disagreement other than arbitration? I think there's some clauses that have been put into buy sell agreements to just outline to say, you know, if you want to leave, that's great. You set the price, but I get to decide whether I'm a buyer or a seller. Is that? ring a bell to either of you or is that just something that uh yeah i mean you've got shotgun clauses you've got piggyback clauses you've got drag along clauses and just important to note just because you want out doesn't mean that you can necessarily prejudice the other shareholders 
a very fundamental point. Like you don't have all the rights in the world just because you simply want out as a, as a minority shareholder, as a one third shareholder, like you can't screw over the business, especially if you're key personnel. Right. Um, but yeah, you can of course have rights of first refusal to then first offer the shares to the partners. You can have any share transfer conditional on the approval of all other shareholders so that you don't bring someone into the business that you don't want to be partners with. Um, so yeah, there's lots of different ways that you can draft, draft that, draft that up in the agreement. I don't know, Mr. Robinson, if what, what you put into your agreements, uh, beyond that, but. No, I mean, I think that's just exactly right. It's all part of the, how do you want it to work? And, you know, think of all the bad stuff that can happen and hope that it doesn't, but make sure you've addressed it. Great. Um, what happens, you know, in a termination kind of, you know, situation, somebody's terminated for cause, you know, they, you know, have done something that ruined, you know, hurts the reputation of the business. Um, how do you address, you know, should I be, should I be buying that partner out for full value? Is there, you know, what are some of the conversations around that type of what if? Sure. No, that, you know, malfeasance, misfeasance, um, you know, yeah, that, that certainly is something that should be addressed in the agreement. And is, you know, Michael Columbus, as you just said, well, assuming that the criteria for removing somebody are met, what is the monetary result? Is there, do they suffer some kind of the of a, of a discount because of, of what they did or did not do. Um, those, you know, those things come up and it's unfortunate, but it happens and the parties need to think about that. And, and that's a good point. And, you know, you, you've got the employment question, which is, you know, what is the, any, the employment compensation owing, you know, for a long time employee, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that their share uh, value or their share interest um, necessarily takes a hit as a result. Maybe in the situation where you have malfeasance or misfeasance, then I can see maybe, a, you know, a discount to shares being applied. But just to be clear, there are two questions. It's one, what is the employment compensation owing? And what is the share compensation owing? And the two aren't, aren't the same, but they can definitely overlap. Great. Um, I, I think, you know, some of the other things to think about is, you know, on these triggering events and I, you know, again, we could get lost in the weeds on the, on, on all of this stuff. There's, you know, tons of places to go, but it, you know, inside of there is to be thinking about um, what are the terms, you know, if, if somebody owns 30% of the company and you've got a $10 million company, Where's the company now coming up with the $3 million and what are the terms and what is the impact that that's going to have on the company, which, you know, it's going to go into our, our funding in a second. That's so I, I'll, I'll save, save some more of that there. Um, but I, I, I'm looking forward, looking forward to that one, obviously. Um, disability. I want to hit that real quick. Michael Robinson, disability and a C corporation, if it's not covered in the buy-sell agreement, are there any, you know, issues that could come up for the business, you know, when you don't have that covered? Yeah, it, it will depend to a, a significant degree on what is this stakeholder's involvement. So once again, are they simply a, a part owner? Um, and, and they're otherwise passive with respect to their involvement, or they, are they an employee um, of, of the company? So it, it, that's a tricky one. It, you know, certainly you want to identify what does is, what is incapacity mean? It's not just physical incapacity. It, 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 it's something that prohibits somebody from being able to do their job properly. Uh, and to be contributing to, you know, to the enterprise properly. So once again, just defining the term uh, in terms of uh, is it a triggering event or not? And that is, you know, as Michael Pava was saying, two very different considerations. One is if they're an employee, um, what does that do to their position? You know, they may have to be removed, but they may not 
be at all impacted in terms of their ownership interest. Right. Yeah, because you're treated differently if you're working there. The C corporation, you know, if it continues your salary, if you're not working there any longer, no, you've got a whole different issue. So there's, you know, these buy sell things, even though we're talking buy sell agreement, you also have to look at it from an employment standpoint, because more often than not in the small to medium sized business, the owners are employees and taking a salary from the business as well. You know, if you've got your disabled partner, that's the main rainmaker. <laughs> sure. And, and sure, then the company can't really operate without that disabled partner. You know, is it practical to be paid full pop or to pay out for the other shareholders to pay out full pop for the rainmaker's interest? It's just impractical sometimes. Right. And so you've got to have a mechanism for resolving that set yep. out, you know. That's and, and, and now you're going right back into, you know, funding of all of these triggering events. So let's, you know, let's talk about funding for a second. Um, who wants to jump on there and talk about, you know, uh, some of the ways that we fund, you know, an agreement? Michael Robinson? Yeah, I was just gonna, gonna say, Michael, the whole funding piece, it's so basic, but it is so often overlooked you know, but the reality is, if you're going to have a buy-sell agreement that creates obligations of some sort, how are you going to fund those obligations? And, you know, I know in many instances, life insurance is utilized as a, as a tool to create uh, some liquidity. Um, that works if the triggering event is the death of someone, uh, but otherwise, that's not terribly helpful. Um, so if you're trying to address other issues, yeah, how do you fund that? Do you create a sinking fund, uh, you know, for that to, to be available? Is there an agreement that when a triggering event that requires a buyout occurs, is there some provision for that payout to happen over time? Um, if so, you know, how do you, is it a fixed payment? Is it based on profitability or revenues? You know, those are some of the things, but, um, you know, or maybe there's just, you know, it's, it's a, a cash rich enterprise and they've just got money, you know, that's going to be available. Uh, financing, you know, that's, that's an option too in, in, in a lot of instances. So, you know, how you do it, is going to depend on, on, again, the structure of the company, what kind of resources does it have, uh, as well as on what is the nature of the triggering event. But boy, the funding aspect is just, yeah, it's so important. You know, who cares if you have an agreement? If you can't fund it, then it's all meaningless at the yeah, end of the day. Yeah. But what I see, what I've seen a lot of is vendor takebacks uh, secured by share pledges or promissory notes. The vendor actually you know, uh, enters into this agreement, the, the exiting shareholder, and, you know, they're paid over time. A lot is what needs to happen because, you know, if you're not in a cash rich operation or the other shareholders don't have enough assets to, you know, put up as collateral from the bank, uh, you've got to go the VTB route, which, you know, for the exiting shareholder, that's not necessarily the best because you're not getting that lump sum cash. Um, but it may be the only way to work it is payment over time. Right. And, yeah, there's always practice. That's a great point, Michael. There's just practical considerations that come into play as, as part of this. But even going back to the life insurance, you know, that, okay, who's going to pay the premium? Um, how do you, what, what if they don't pay the premium? How do you monitor that? There's, you know, there's just always something. Of course. And then, and then you know, it's thinking about in a family business, and we've seen this because the the current owners are planning and working until they're 70 or you know they're they're going to keep going so term insurance doesn't work right in that, in that circumstance because you can, just can't hold it that long um and you know where term insurance in a buy sell agreement makes the most sense because it's inexpensive more often than not it's you know a great way to do that but then there's no cash value so there's no asset where the you know so there's all of these, all of these pieces where I think that's where the, the two of us, the three of us would really, you know, get along well is because from a planning perspective, we want to model these things. Okay. So you've got a buy sell agreement. Let me show you 
what, you know, um, you know, a 10% down at 5% on $3 million looks like before tax and after tax to your business. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe we need to do this for 15 years. Um, and now how does that 15 year agreement look like in your retirement when you get out there? Sure. Yeah. Um, so it, it really does make, you know, a, a boatload of, of difference. Um, we, you know, we utilize life insurance on a pretty regular basis for funding the death side of buy cells. Um, you know, as you said, who's paying for it, regardless of whether it's a cross purchase or a stock redemption, a lot of times we will have the company pay for it, but if it's personally owned, then it has to be section 162 bonus out to everybody. But now at least the company's paying for it. So everybody knows what's going on. Um, if it's if it's permanent insurance, you might be able to get some double duty out of it. But I always caution people: life insurance. You know, I um, I'm a big fan of it. Should have one purpose as often as it possibly can. Um, anything outside of that is just gravy. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's yeah that that funding piece. You know, I think it's modeling what you're looking at and understanding here's what we agreed to on paper, but what is the, what does that look like realistically? Right. It's funny. Cause you could have a buy sell agreement that has a shotgun clause as part of it, but those clauses are often abused if they know that the other shareholder can't finance or fund the purchase. So then they can end up actually stealing the shares away from you because, Hey, I know you can't pay for this anyway. So I'm going to exercise this, the shotgun clause. So remind everybody what the shotgun clause is real quick. Uh, yeah, so essentially one shareholder makes uh, an offer to the other. And this is if you don't buy the shares back from me, then, you know, um, then I can buy them back from you, essentially. Yep. And it's funny. We, we call that the Russian roulette. You know, the same kind same. I hadn't heard the call the shotgun, you know, scenario before. That's why I was asking. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, and I've seen it in still bid where it's like, we both put the, the num, you know, the number of the business into the business and the highest number wins. Um, and so those are some of the ways that they do that. But it, like you said, Michael Pava, I didn't even think about that. If one shareholder has more money than the other one, that's pretty tricky. That's tricky. Anything else when it comes to funding that either of you want to add to what we, you know, what we've done here today? Just, I think to your point is you got to address it up front and, and, and you got to run the numbers and you can't just say, well, I'm going to, you know, buy this insurance or we're going to do an installment sale or, or whatever. You really have to look at what are the economic realities, you know, maybe you've got some cash flow where you can start a sinking fund, but you, you have some term insurance to cover, you know, the initial period until you're comfortable that the, the fund is up to where you want it to be. Uh, but yeah, you got to look at whatever you're thinking about. Realistically, can you afford it? I, which goes back to what I, I think we talked about in the beginning at one point was just that it, a buy-sell agreement is not a set it and forget it agreement exactly it needs to be reviewed you need to look at it the value of the company you know changes over time the the people change over the time what you need what your needs are changes over time so this is a you know a, this is a live document that should be reviewed yeah it's not something that goes on a shelf and that's that right um, even though, even though most of the time, let's be honest, that's what our clients do. You know, business owners, they don't like paying lawyers, oh, attorneys, you know, accountants, they're just really boring people. They're all, always overcomplicating things. But please, to our listeners, you've got to take a look at the agreement every few years. And, oh, yeah. and you may, you may, may save a lot in legals by avoiding a dispute if you just put, pay that little bit of, of money for the planning and for the updated agreement. Yeah, yeah, you can think of the meeting with your attorney or your plan or an advisory team and, you know, as insurance. So you can pay a little bit to have this all covered, or you can pay a lot later. And, you know, that's a, a really great place. Um, I, uh, family that I've, you know, worked with, 
um, they didn't have the valuation pegged down properly. And one of the family members wanted to leave. And, you know, uh, I said to them, you know, your buy-sell agreement isn't up to snuff. We were getting ready to fix it. And he decided to leave right then. It was a great time to, for him to, you know, or her to step aside. And when, you know, you look at those things, had it been reviewed by one of the two of you, you know, three years earlier, they wouldn't have been in the, the situation at that point. And it cost them more because the attorney's fees, they were fighting and they were going back and forth. And those attorney's fees, I was shocked at how fast when you start talking litigation, they start to add up really quick, don't they, Michael Pava? Goodness gracious. Yeah. You want to avoid paying litigators at all costs. Ser seriously. To the listeners, avoid litigation fees at all costs. I'm not joking because they get astronomical really quick. Not only that, you're paying your own forensic accountant to be the hired gun in terms of seeking your, your valuation of the shares. Right. So, you know, it's great. It, it's great if it works. It, you know, if it works until it doesn't. I've got a client, they've done hundreds of million dollars and they've got a group of company worth hundreds of millions. And so I'm kind of advising on the up and comers in the family, like how are we gonna facilitate this transition? And they, they, they have not one shareholder agreement, not one shareholder agreement. And that's amazing. And, it, and if it can work, that's great, but it works until it doesn't work. It's, it's the question is when it, when it ceases to work, how are we gonna deal with this? Got it. So we're, we're coming up on the top of the hour. Let me, let's do this. Any last words or you know, thoughts that you want to share about buy-sell agreements? But more importantly, when you wrap up, make sure people know how they can get a hold of you. Where, do they, where can they find you? you know, um, I think you know, either one of you should be spending some time with you know, these people that are listening right now and having them helping them to review their buy-sell agreement. Yeah, I, you know, Michael Robinson here. I, the, the most important thing is to have one. Um, and, and then, of course, you want to make sure it's appropriate for, for your situation. But it's an investment. It's an investment in your business. And if this is something that's important to you and you want to see it continue, whether it's within the family or, or not, um, you need to address these issues. If they're difficult conversations, they're difficult. There are people who can help you facilitate them if necessary, but the conversations need to be had. It needs to be memorialized in writing and it needs to be reviewed on a regular basis. Great. And how do people get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, you can uh, access uh, me through our website, which is www.mrobinsonlaw.com. Um, you can shoot an email to info at mrobinsonlaw.com. And uh, if you want to give us a phone call, 585-374-5210. Beautiful. Michael, appreciate it. Michael Pava. Yeah, absolutely. You need an agreement and you need it to be as clear and as practical as possible. Practical. Think about the practical implications of how you're going to facilitate that agreement. Uh, think about how you're going to resolve disputes. That's the most important thing from my perspective is how are we going to resolve any dispute? You want to get in touch, you can email me at m.pava at rplawyers with an s.ca or by phone 416-800-1733. Beautiful. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time and sharing your information and knowledge with uh, our listeners. And uh, I bid you adieu and uh, uh, really appreciate your time today. Um, thanks for joining us, everybody. I'm Michael Columbus with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York, and you've been listening to the Family Biz Show. Um, make sure to uh, chime in for our next uh, episode and uh, find us on your favorite podcast if, you, you know, if this is your first time listening. Um, subscribe so that you don't miss another episode. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting-edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. 
Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with the Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.